This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. This week's Spotlight, we're going to be talking about a couple different things. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Hi, this is Jen from Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, and I'm here with Lynn today. And I'm really looking forward to this subject today, Jen. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it too. It's something that came up with my husband. He's actually the one who brought it to my attention. And it's the situation that's going on with Avital Ronell. I don't know if I'm saying her last name correctly, but she's a professor at NYU. And it recently surfaced that she is going through a unusual Title IX investigation. And it was really discovered because of this letter that was posted by, what is his name? Brian Leader, is that? Brian Leader, who runs the blog. Uh, he's a, an academic at University of Chicago and uh, a well-known uh, kind of legal theorist about law. Right. And so he posted on his blog about this letter that had been circulating, which was apparently in defense of Avital. And so it brought up a lot of different ideas. And I think right before this, we were having a great conversation about some of the different themes that were being brought to light. And I think it would be really helpful to our listener to be able to get a glimpse into some of the things we talked about. It brought up for me, maybe just to shape this kind of history for our listener. And we're glad you're listening to this conversation. It's something near and dear to my heart, really. In academics, when you're in the academic world, there are a lot of committees. And this is actually about an investigation against a female academic, Avital, who was at UC Berkeley out here, and I had some contact with her when she was here. And then she moved to NYU and has been there. But in academics, there are a lot of committees and there are processes that are followed if there's a, a sexual allegation or a complaint about misconduct. So there are endless committees you can be on in academics. And I've had the pleasure of being on many of these misconduct evaluations. Then you can actually file if, in addition to filing within the university, you file outside the university for Title IX, which is government evaluation, or the EEOC also does evaluation. So there's a number of separate channels if you're a student or, say, fellow academic and you have a complaint against an academic individual. I think what interested me about this is, as the letter writers had said, Avital has a position. She's a woman who's achieved a great deal in our world, and she's written a great deal academically and in the areas of psychoanalysis and philosophy, and is really very well known in that way. But there was a sexual allegation and complaint made against her and a process ongoing at NYU, and then a number 
of fellow faculty and other members, uh, many of them well-known, who stepped forward to defend her. So that's the process that you alerted me to, and it's not surprising in academics. What is surprising is that it's a female academic here, and uh, that these complaints are being put forward about her. It's also not surprising that a letter would be written by a group of individuals who know the academic in defense of the academic's behavior. But you brought up, Jennifer, and I think rightly so, that this letter, uh, as Professor Leader talks about, poses a lot of problems. Yeah, I think that's what I found so fascinating about it, is not being in the academic field. It definitely raised some red flags for me in the sense of the content of the letter and the things that were presented. It very much sounds like it's in defense of the person without necessarily understanding what is going on or having enough information to make a determination. And perhaps it's because I've recently just done this huge paper literature review on grooming practices and how abusers will groom not just themselves or the children, but also an environment. It made me think, oh, how interesting all these people are coming to the defense of this person. Because as I was doing the research, I think it's really important to highlight one of the findings is, you know, in our society, we have this idea of abusers as being these sort of people on the side, people on the side who are kind of weird and, you know, very easily identifiable as being an abuser or pedophile. And I think because of that, these findings are really important because what it shows is, no, these these abusers that are succeeding are often very charming, are often very well liked by their community, and that's part of the grooming process. So that if there are accusations made against them, the community will come to their defense. And so... Obviously, this is not necessarily the case here, but it definitely brought up some of these things that I was just researching. And I find it interesting that you were talking about these letters, particularly in the past, are very common, especially in defense of men who have done things where they were abusing or sexually harassing. And I thought that was really interesting. And the study, you know, the the paper you and I worked on was for the state of California, and it's really about how they can deal with abusers within the teaching system. Right. And that teachers groom the other teachers and their teaching environment and the administrators when they are intending to engage in abusive activity is really very important to know that, that that process is ongoing. The other thing, uh, another recent study by Catherine Clancy in the National Geographic two months ago looked at academic abusers within the sciences almost all male. And I think this is important that within academics, there are a lot of abuse allegations made, but they're almost all against men, not against a woman as it was with Avital here. And Catherine Clancy wrote about how rare it is that academic abusers would be treated in the way that Harvey Weinstein was. And there's kind of a closed-door policy. It's handled in a private matter. They never lose their jobs, or very, very rarely, for abuse, even if it's proven. And this is very, very important. And I encourage all our listeners to look at the National Geographic. It was their number, their front article, and it was um, just scathing 
in its review of academic committees and how they hide abuse. So I think it's very, very important to be aware of that, that there is this process going on. I myself have been on many of these committees to evaluate abusers' uh, complaints against teachers, fellow teachers, and I have seen many letters similar to the letter that was sent out in support of Avital. So it indicates that this is part of that process. And your comments have made me question all of this. In in what sense? Can you explain <laughs> that a little bit? Well, you know, we're all part of a system. And I realized that in being on these committees, I was often the only woman on a committee looking at a male abuser and their behavior in academics. And um, there were always countless letters from other male academics uh, supporting the fine work of the individual who was engaged in the abuse. And this is what Catherine Clancy is beginning to talk about. And I think seeing, as you bring out, Jennifer, that this is part of the grooming process, and even if we discount on the committee these letters because they're not relevant to the complaint, they do have an impact. And to see this as a, a faulty process, and this is where I think the blog did a service to bring this up, though I think it's very important that we look at the fact that this is coming so much to light around a woman academic and how rare it is for a woman academic to have actually been proven or to even have allegations made with respect to sexual abuse. And I think part of that, too, is that there just are not as many women that are in as high positions, because if you look at that, the field of academia in that sense, too, I think that that plays a big role in it as well. It's even though, as uh, Catherine Clancy points out, even for the small number of women in academics, a relatively small percent of their population has allegations made against them. So almost never are allegations made against women under these kind of circumstances. The other point I'd be concerned about, there's another woman working, Kate Mann, who's done written a book called Down Girl uh, that's just out in the last three or four months and really addresses that women in power you know, are often, you know, really gone after in a very negative way. So I'd wonder, is this letter out there, even unconsciously, because we've all been groomed to see women in power as not being the way it should be. And so we will go after it in that context. We go after a woman academic, we would not with a man. And I think to be aware of that bias when we're looking at this this situation is really important. Though it really made me question, you know, these letters need to be disallowed. They need to be talked about. It's kind of a backroom deal going on. And it's a process that really probably supports what Catherine Clancy is talking about is we can't get harassers out of academia. Yeah. And I think that's part of what I find really enlightening is that in looking at what she was writing about is that there are certain things, certain specific themes that occur in these letters, such as, you know, talking in a way where you're sort of implying a threat about losing this person because, you know, they bring, you know, some exceptional ability to, to the science field that they're in, or, you know, 
implying that in removing them from this position, it may hurt the trainee below them who, you know, did not take these same actions, was not abusing and harassing. So what about them? Or another way is really looking at the abusers that have a lot of federal funding. That definitely affects the school. And I think it's really interesting that these are some categories that repeatedly show up in these types of letters. So it's really kind of a formulaic thing. They do. And, you know, I've talked about it here before with our listeners, but I too, you know, 30 plus years ago, had a lawsuit, you know, discrimination against uh, male academics, really. And uh, letters were written in support of them. And uh, there was even an editorial in Science that finally had to admit that I had won my lawsuit in court on multiple levels, but it was very much along the lines of what you're saying, would this male academic, you know, his loss to science would be so great that if he were taken away and he was removed from his position, you know, but his lo- the loss was so great because of how great he was, which is very much along the lines of what you're talking about, overvaluation of men's contributions to academic and intellectual achievement. And it's interesting because Avital is a woman with considerable academic and intellectual power. Yes, definitely. And so I think it, it is important to highlight again that this is being brought up around her. And at the same time, I think it's important because it, it gives us a chance to look at a lot of those dynamics and how we approach things differently when it comes to gender in our society. Yeah, no, but uh, I do think it's a point that needs to be brought up and talked about because these letters are going on behind closed doors and they're a part of that system which keeps you know, male harassers in academic, you know, really in power. Mm -hmm. And not only male harassers were a female to engage in that behavior, the same uh, mechanisms would uh, be applied toward her. That's what I was just about to say, too, is I, I do wonder, though, whether rates of this type of abuse and allegation would go up if there were more women in these types of positions of power. I think we all wonder that, really. Um, You know, uh, again, though, we have to think of how much harassment women in power face. I mean, Mm -hmm. we started this, uh, uh, our own kind of podcast after uh, Hillary Clinton. And, you know, really looking at when women take on positions of power, there's an extreme reaction to put them down and bring them down and to take that away from them. Uh, so I uh, agree with you. I think this is an interesting thing to look at how power and gender intersect around this area. One thing that you brought up that I hadn't considered before is that in some ways, maybe some of the women that, that were on this letter are approaching it because they are fearful that there won't be due process because of her be- of Avital being a woman. And that was very interesting to me to think about because that's not a position I had considered. And I think for years, I was part of a group, we advocate gender equity for women in academics. And I think to keep in mind that women really don't have the resources, the university provides attorneys for male harassers, they often defend them, there's less of this now. But this is an old tradition. And women 
often had uh, attorneys who were doing volunteer work to help support their issues. So it was a very unequal power balance there taking place. And it's really about how can women get due process within an academic system. You know, it really is not set up necessarily to work for women, even a, a woman as powerful as Avital. And I think a lot of the women whose names are on the letter really had experienced from the other side not getting due process. Um, but I, I wonder, you know, how could we ensure that Avital get due process in this way? I, I mean, I think one drawing attention to the fact that women don't get due process is important. And that might have been the way to do that instead of writing a letter like this, which mm-hmm. is actually the old traditional defend the male harasser letter. And it's problematic because of that. Exactly. And then threatening, you know, in that way. And an earlier letter was uh, published, uh, who, which had also been written by Jacques Derrida, who signed this letter. And it indicated, again, because this person has made such wonderful, great contributions, they should not be lost, in that case, a man. But the argument is really, we need to ensure that everyone get due process in this in this way. And that is the individual who is making the allegations of abuse right? and the professor who they are being made against. So really both have to have rights protected. And we have to realize that women have not had their rights protected in these situations. And that's what makes it so complicated because you wonder about, well, you know, you don't want to leave somebody who's a potential abuser in place, but you also don't want to just remove them entirely if they're being falsely accused. And so I think it brings up a whole new area for people to come up with some policies around what does due process actually look like and how do you take care of both people's rights? And what is what are the purposes of these letters, really? Yeah. You know, in terms of evaluating and really looking at a process. I mean, having been on these committees that look at uh, harassment complaints, I think things that do make a difference are, uh, again, uh, letters that indicate a pattern of complaints from other individuals. Because um, having been involved in a recent case, um, I went back and looked at the, har- the har- harassment history of a particular professor, and there were more than 20 individuals who uh, had negative experiences. So it's that kind of history that I think makes a very significant, you know, that's a contribution to the committee to know that you have a pattern of abuse, which gets to what you were talking about earlier the grooming, how it takes place, how the environment's groomed, the repetition of all of this, mm-hmm. all important in the abuse process. Well, I wanted to add to that, too, because for people who are not in their, in this field, they may not know. Often the patterns that are there are not just these general patterns, but each abuser has sort of their own specific yes. way of doing things. And so if you get people who have never met each other, hear their story and hear these similarities, it becomes pretty clear that there is one a pattern, but also that it's specific to the person who is doing the abuse. Exactly. And I think what I learned from this recent study we worked on together, Jennifer, was that the environment is groomed. So the university environment is actually groomed 
you know, by abusers to protect and to maintain them. Mm -hmm. And um, they don't see that much like you know, middle school, high school, and elementary school administrators don't see when a teacher is abusing. Mm-hmm. And and to highlight a little bit, maybe more clearly, what we mean by grooming the environment, mm-hmm. building those relationships so that you're likable, so that you're seen in a really positive light, and so that people almost can't even fathom that you would abuse. You hear that a lot of the times when someone is accused, is that, well, they're not that kind of person. And so that's part of that grooming process is to get people to see you in a different light so that you can have time away out of the public's eyes in which you are engaged in the abusive behavior. Yum. And it really brings up what do these letters, you know, what is the purpose of these letters that testify, you know, to academic achievement and to character in in our legal process. And that's the part that flagged me for the grooming is you're not saying you're not writing this letter saying, you know, I'm concerned that this person will not get due process. You're essentially saying this person is a good person, they bring great contributions to the university, and therefore they could not have abused somebody. Mm -hmm. And those aren't actually relevant. Yeah. Well, this has raised a lot of question, and I'm, I have to thank your husband for bringing this up as a subject. And we really like to hear from listeners about maybe grooming in environments you might work or live in, sexual grooming, and things that we maybe haven't thought about directly, how they might be part of that process. And then, of course, always listening to the gender issues, which I think are so important. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you. Come on. Let's talk about sex.